we continue in worship to our God, we, we turn to Psalm 45 in our copies of God's Word. That's Psalm 45. And we'll commence our reading there with the superscription. Hear once again the word of our God. To the chief musician upon Shashanim, for the sons of Korah, Mashko, a song of loves. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of things, the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously, because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia, out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters, were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Thus far the reading of God's word. And again, may he bless it to us richly this night. We return, of course, to Psalm 45. Mindful, this is a psalm about the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, There is no question about that. Of course, the Spirit-inspired apostle, as he reflects on this psalm, has no qualms in applying these things to Jesus. Verses 6 and 7 particularly. To Jesus, the only begotten Son. To Jesus, who is King. But as we look at this psalm, I'd remind you just what we said last Lord's Day evening. That this is a psalm, of course, that belongs to Israel's praise. It is for us to sing. It is part and parcel, as it were, of Israel's worship. But it is also, as we said before, a mashkil. It is a psalm of instruction. This is a mixture for us, as all psalms really are, but this, in some unique sense, it is a psalm that is also instruction. It is a mixture of praise and pedagogy. And we can't miss that. As we saw this before in the first verse, The first thing in which we're instructed is not even about the king himself. The first thing that the spirit-inspired psalmist sets before us is not the king or the queen. It's the psalmist himself. It's his heart, his mind that we encounter. And you remember the disposition that we're given here. We're told here that his heart is indicting. His heart is indicting. His inmost being is stirred with these things. And what does he speak of? I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. What you have here is a a psalmist who is affectionate, and because he's a skillful scribe, that's how he describes himself, 
He is knowledgeable of his subject. Knowledge and heart are mixed. They coalesce in this moment. Striking, isn't it, that this is the first point of instruction that we're given. Before the psalmist tells us even about the king himself, he tells us about the character of one who would bear witness to that king. A man who is skillful. A man who is thought deeply. A man who is a ready thinker and a ready writer about Christ. And a man who does not do so dispassionately. But a man who from the inmost parts of his being are stirred with his theme. He is a man who is knowledgeable of Christ, the divine son and the mediatorial king. And principally the themes that we have here are those themes of glory, the majesty of this kingly Jesus. These are the themes that he sets before us. Now that's the psalmist's disposition we come this evening primarily to his composition, to the work that he commits itself. And you have the description there given to us here in two words, translated in ours as good matter. The word is tov devar, which is literally translated good word. The idea is that the psalmist is describing not the theme itself, though that's implied in a sense. The, the, the thing that the psalmist describes, that which he calls good, is the composition itself. The psalm that we're taking up this evening, he says these are good Words and, and the word good there, we have to understand, is not the same sense that we might have in our own vernacular. The word good in our vernacular often means, doesn't it, sufficient. It, it means just enough. It passes muster. That's not the way the word good is really used in the scriptures. The word good in this context really means best. That's exactly how it's translated elsewhere in the Old Testament. Uh, for example, Esther 2, Deuteronomy 23, so on and so forth. These are excellent words. The composition, the piece that he would put out, this instruction and this praise, he says is truly excellent. And I would only remind you, friend, that as we come to this text, this is the first point of departure in our instruction. Before we even get to the body of the psalm itself, the psalmist tells us these are excellent words. This is a good body of work. Now, holding that together, what do we have? Well, friend, this psalm, as I've already told you, is, of course, a testimony to a kingly Messiah. It sets before us, in brilliance, the majesty of our Christ, and focuses upon Christ, particularly as he holds that office as mediator, as God-man that is king. It is Christ as he holds the scepter, Christ, as he is crowned, that the psalmist primarily has in view. And he tells us that this testimony is comprised of good words. Excellent words. Now friend, if this is a testimony to our king, and to such a king, it almost goes without saying that such a testimony ought to be good. It ought to be excellent in the sense that the psalmist has in view. And that's really the theme that I want to insist on this evening. That the psalmist here, according to reason and more than that, according to the very nature of the subject itself, 
urges us that this testimony of Christ as king must be, is really good. And if we're to apply this to ourselves, we can apply it this way. That so also the believer must render an excellent testimony to Christ's kingship. He is, after all, the psalmist exemplary in his work here. He sets before us not only his heart, but his work before he takes us to the king. And I want us to consider that, this requirement that the testimony to Christ's kingship is excellent, just under these two headings. The subject itself, that which is principle in the testimony, and then if you like, his style. And so take first of all the subject. We're told again, as I've said to you already, that the work here is described as being good. Good in its composition, good in its words. These are excellent words, says the psalmist. And, and of course, friend, it stands to reason, doesn't it, that, that excellent words, the, the best of compositions, are really only to be reserved for the best of themes. Excellent words only really befit excellent ideas. The idea of, of perhaps swapping those around. Perhaps poor words trying to, trying to extol a good theme. Or an evil theme lauded by good words. It's not fitting. And so even as the psalmist presents to us a description of his own work, he really is also describing for us the theme of which he writes. This is a theme worthy of excellent composition. This is a theme worthy of good words. Thus, a theme excellent in itself. Now that would be enough for us to meditate on this evening, but I want to press us just a wee bit further. Beloved, as you look at this text, the words that we have here, we can quickly read over. We are a people who say, of course, that every word of God is inspired, every word of God is precious, and yet how quickly are we reading through texts without giving much heed to the words that are used? My heart is indicting a good matter. He describes the psalm for us as excellent. And what's striking about that, friend, is this is the only psalm in all of Zion's book of praise that describes itself as excellent before we ever get to its content. In fact, what's striking is this is the only psalm in the book of Zion's praise that describes itself before it comes to its theme. It's a striking thing, isn't it? And it leads us to ask the question, why this? Why this particular psalm described for us in such ways? Why is this psalm described as excellent when other psalms possess no such description at the onset. Now, beloved, as we look at that, there is, of course, a lot of weight to that question. The question arises from the fact, of course, that every word, every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, demands awe, rejoicing, love, obedience. In one sense, of course, every word that comes from the Lord is excellent, the best of words. But that does, does that not just reiterate the question? Why this description at the onset? To answer that question, perhaps, it would lead us to think of, an, of a parallel. There is another book that is given to us with a description before we come to its content. Of course, I'm speaking here about the Song of Solomon. There, the first verse, the first chapter, we're told here that it's a song of songs. 
Now, friend, understand what that means. When we look at that and we read that text, what, the, what, what the Solomon is saying is that this is a song of all songs. Really, you're supposed to take this as, this is a song excellent peculiarly. This is a song unique in and of itself. A song that is really different than others that have gone before it and after it. A friend, remember that this is the Spirit-inspired writer that tells us this. This is a song of songs. A song above all the other Scripture songs, says the psalmist. Says the Song of Solomon. How can we think of that without there being any derogation brought to any other part of God's Word? I'll stop belaboring the point. Let me emphasize just this. That of course, no part of God's Word is being, is being rendered contemptible in any way. But what we have here, as James Durham comments, is just this. That this kind of superlative language applied to a particular part of God's word, Song of Solomon and our psalm this evening, means only this. The work is purposefully intended to treat of the most choice and excellent subject, namely Christ and his church, which is not done on particular occasions as in other songs, but is the great purpose that is only designed and pursued. What makes that even more important, perhaps, is just the fact that most commentators believe, through the running centuries, that the Song of Songs is really a commentary on our psalm this evening. Why is this psalm given this epitaph that it's excellent? When so many others don't possess such a description. Why is the Song of Songs called what it is? Well, here Durham helpfully reminds us the subject that they treat are excellent. Uniquely so. Excellent and best in the most superlative terms. All of the scripture, of course, is filled with glory and excellency. But when we come to this theme, here we have the glory and excellency of God set before us most conspicuously, most brilliantly. And the psalmist, as he comes to the kingship of Christ, his great theme, he reminds us here that Christ's kingship is a uniquely excellent theme. A uniquely excellent theme. And I want to show this to you through the scriptures. And so I ask you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians 15, and I'll pick up our reading there at verse 19. Our aim here is, of course, to see the excellency of Christ's kingship. To get some sense of why this is considered, in some sense, a uniquely excellent theme in the book of God. And for that, we turn to the 19th verse of 1 Corinthians 15. And here where the apostle writes... If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are all men most miserable. But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming. Then cometh the end. 
When he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. For he hath put all things under his feet. But when he saith he all things are put under him, it is manifest that he is accepted which did put all things under him. And when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. At the risk of making this a sermon on 1 Corinthians 15, I'd only draw your attention to some very basic principal ideas that you have in this text. First of all, it is manifest that the apostle is thinking eschatologically. He's thinking about the end, the consummation of all things. And what is so striking about that is that as as the apostle meditates on the end, as he contemplates consummation, his mind goes not to the priestly or to the prophetic functions of the Messiah, But he contemplates Christ's kingship here. Note that. Really. From the 24th 24th verse and down. It is the kingdom and the authority and the power of this Christ. To whom it has been given. That he must reign till he have put all enemies under his feet. The inspired apostle draws our attention. As he thinks about the end of all things. To Christ enthroned. That's the first point that I'd have you note. This is also, of course, the point of departure that the Apostle takes with the rest of evangelicalism today. When he thinks of the end, he thinks of a kingly Christ. But the second thing I would have you see here is that you have these words that are perplexing to some, but really are not difficult at all. In verse 24, he has delivered up the kingdom to God. The word delivered up there has the idea, not that he is somehow abdicating the throne. The idea there is he is presenting to the Father as a completed work all that he has accomplished. He is king in Zion. He is really as king subdued all of his enemies. And as such he presents at the end of the age this finished work. All things, all things have been subdued. Either in justice as Christ's enemies are destroyed or subdued by grace. As Christ subdues his people to himself. The sense here is one of completion. And here Christ. Zion's king presents to the father. This finished work. That's what the apostle says. Is really the end. Now beloved as you look at that text. What does that tell you? One it tells you of course. That the motif of Christ's kingship is crucial. But it also sets before us. This very basic idea. There is a unique glory. In this kingdom. A unique glory in this kingship. What do I mean by that? Take just for an analogy Adam. Adam of course was made by God in his creation. God's vicegerent. God had created Adam in such a way that he would rule over the lesser creatures. And why would he rule? He would rule that all things. All things would be ordered according to the will of God. That was Adam's calling. He was a king on earth. The first of kings. But friend, when the day of reckoning would come, if there was no redemption offered, if there was no second Adam, what kind of kingdom could Adam produce? 
A kingdom, of course, that was overrun by sin. A kingdom that was plunged into rebellion against God. By the way, a kingdom led into that rebellion by Adam himself. That was all Adam could present. But when the second Adam comes, at the end of the age, when all things are consummated, Christ presents a creation, yes, once cursed, presents men who were once rebels, and he presents them to God as now really subdued, really brought back to the Lord. This is why our older theologians, this is something largely has been forgotten in Reformed theology, but the older theologians on the continent, uh, not even among Scottish folk, would write this, that there is a difference between the order of intention and that of execution in the munos triplex, the, the threefold office of Christ. In the order of intention, the kingship comes first as the goal of mediation. Note that. It is the goal of mediation, Christ's kingship. Before all things, God gave to the Son as king many brethren to be filled with eternal glory. He receives the priesthood as the means to this end. Because that is why it was given to him to prepare righteousness. And prophecy follows last because to him as a prophet it was given to proclaim righteousness, salvation, and glory unto obedience of faith. It's the very same thing you have in 1 Corinthians 15. Christ, as he is king, is really subduing all things back to God. And oh, beloved, what does that mean for us? Should this not be an excellent theme to redeem sinners? The first Adam could present only a kingdom riven through with sin. The second Adam can transform rebels into sons. The theme that the psalmist contemplates in Psalm 45 is unique. Unique in the way that we think of creation and redemption being unique one from the other. If you take Psalm 29, you have, as I've mentioned to you already before, You have, of course, that wonderful testimony that the book of nature, the book of creation, extols the glory of our God. And it certainly does. As you see the power and the majesty of the creation, you're immediately supposed to lift your gaze heavenward and see that those things are shards only, shadows only of what is in God in perfection. But then the psalmist comes, you remember, at the end of Psalm 29, to say, and yet all speak of God's glory In his temple. It's as though the psalmist says. But here. Here where I see a laver. Open for cleansing. An altar. Erected for atonement. Even a door. Made for entrance. There especially I see the glory of God. Beloved, it is the case that the glory of God is most conspicuously seen in our mediator, in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an excellent thing. It is a wondrous thing. And it's one that then leaves no question as to why the psalmist insists this testimony is and must be excellent. 
The application for us is basic, isn't it? You have here a heart, a man here who loves his king, a man who sees the glory of the one of whom he writes. And so he longs that he would compose that which is also excellent. He longs that his testimony would, as it were, be worthy of his subject. And friend, how, how much should that be part and parcel of the Christian's experience? Do we think much of this kingship? Do we think much, as the apostle does, that really through the ages gone by, this is the great point and end of redemption, that that which was lost would indeed be redeemed to the glory of our God, and that really it is the kingship of Christ that would really subdue all of these things back to the Lord. If we think of these things, then certainly our love for this theme should be raised. But secondly, that brings us to our second heading, and that is the man's style. The man's style. As he seeks to make a testimony, as he writes under inspiration of God's Spirit, he tells us again he is one who is bringing good matter, this excellent word, and he does so as a ready scribe. The psalmist here is telling us that he is a man, as I've said before, as affectionate as he is careful, as he is skillful. And of course, he's a man then that has esteemed his subject worthy of such an excellent style, if you like. His affections for Christ demand this excellency. And beloved, as we close, I would just remind you that this is a picture. By way of application, it's a picture that believers long to render an excellent testimony to Christ. Take it in its broadest sense. Take it in its, in its widest meaning. We can apply this not only to words, can't we? we? We can apply this to all of the believer's life. And of course, he's called to do that. He's called to make an excellent testimony, not just in words, but in every part of his being. Walk worthy, says the apostle, of the vocation wherewith you're called. Is the, is the calling, is the vocation excellent? Is, is the calling, is the cause worthy? Then walk worthy yourself, says the Apostle. Again, he says, walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Walk worthy. You have great themes in front of you, Christian. You have a great cause ahead of you. A cause, by the way, that you have espoused. Walk worthy of it, says, says the inspired penman. Again, walk worthy of God who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. An excellent calling requires an excellent testimony, an excellent life. And beloved, though the man here, as he writes the, as the inspired penman, is certainly speaking of the psalm that we are now contemplating, by application does it not come to all of us? Does it not easily come to us when we remember that our lives, as the Apostle says, are declared to be the epistle of Christ? Good words about Christ with a poor life is not an excellent testimony. Good words 
without a heart that is stirred is not an excellent composition. The believer longs in his fullness with his words as much as his life to bear witness to this excellent theme. And beloved, you see why, don't you? Christian sees the king to whom he is made subject. And is that king not excellent? Is he not worthy? Is he not worthy not only of your best words, but is he not worthy of all? You see, a a child who sees their parent as being a good parent, a parent who is who is worthy in every respect to be considered a good parent. He longs, the child longs, only to do those things that are excellent, that testify to this child's affection for the parent whom they love. The subject to the king, when a subject knows they have a good king over them, don't they long to please him, to render some testimony, as it were, to their love toward him. The Christian is no different, only in the respect of degree. His love for Christ must outshine all of these. And so his pressing on for excellence as he testifies to these themes must outshine all. It simply must. Well, as we close, just a few words of application. We are leaving the psalmist this evening. Really, the psalmist does not come back to the fore until the very final verse of Psalm 45. But before we leave the psalmist, as I've said to you already, we have here an example. And the question is, how do we square to the example ourselves? Here we have the picture of a man who longs to be subdued, who really relishes in his king. Does that describe us? When word from on high comes and and decrees from Zion's king come to our ears, are these things that we delight in? Are these things that we are stirred by? Do we long to see his scepter more and more applied over us? The psalmist does. But secondly, you see here a man who also rejoices in the exclusive glory and the exclusive claims of this king. Are we such people? Are we quite content that Christ and Christ alone receive all glory? That our whole lives would be lived only to his testimony, to a testimony of it, to his glory, in praise to his name. Are we quite willing that our lives read as an epistle are just for his sake? These are crucial questions because the psalmist, we are going to sing these very words. And the question is, are we going to be singing a lie of ourselves? Are these things true of us? But beloved, if you are, if you are taking hold of Christ in the way that the psalmist is, one who knows this Christ, who rejoices in his kingship, and you long to bear more fruit, 
to walk worthy of this calling, to render a good testimony. Well, beloved, note here that even in this text, we're supposed to be reminded Christ delights in that heart that longs for greater fruitfulness and despises barrenness. You see, beloved, this is something that is so striking, isn't it? Our Christ delights in the will of his people just to be more fruitful. Yes, of course, he delights in their fruit bearing itself. But Christ does not look contemptuously on the heart that earnestly longs for more and earnestly strives against barrenness. And so, sinner, as you are outside of Christ, I only remind you here that what you have in this psalm is a picture of Christ of which you are entirely ignorant. You see, the psalmist here, when he contemplates Christ, it is a theme of glory, a theme of majesty and something that demands his heart. This is a view of Christ that the unbeliever cannot have. Oh, he can speak of this king. He can speak of this king. He can speak of him as though he's heard many others speak of him. He knows about this king because others have told him. He reads about him. But the unbeliever has never entered his courts. Not really. If you take the Queen of Sheba as an example, you have there a woman who says, once she sees Solomon, then she sees reason to count even his guardsmen blessed, just that they're in his presence. A friend, a greater than Solomon is here, but that sentiment certainly must be applied. The soul that has really seen this Christ as the psalmist sees him. A friend, he recognizes here Christ of glory. Just to be in his presence is blessing. Just to be in his presence is glory. The unbeliever has no view of Christ like this. And so the first thing he must do is he must repent. Repent of his low view of Christ. And this is the thing, the very thing that the Spirit of God will do as he converts a soul. He will lead them to see Christ as the psalmist does in our text. But to those who are in Christ this evening, friend, we have to confess, don't we, that our views of Christ are also too low. The excellency of this subject is hardly meditated on, even by us. And that should make us, then, a people who make it really a holy ambition to know him more as the psalmist here describes him, to see him in his majesty and in his glory in ways we've not seen him before, to make it our ambition to become a skillful scribe, as it were, in these themes. To become people who can say their inmost being is moved with these subjects. In other words, it should be our holy ambition to know him. And then through an excellent testimony to make him known. Beloved, this is our calling. This is what has been enjoined to our hand. As we live just this short while on the earth. To render such a testimony. And so we must. 
We are a people who are privileged to enter into his courts, Lord's Day after Lord's Day. A people who have so many benefits. His word. And even more than that, my dear friend, Christ, our triune God coming to us through that very word and communing with souls. These are the things that we have even at our disposal this day. We ought to make use of them because only through the use of these things will our testimony really to Christ's excellency be manifest. Amen.